1: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today is my pleasure to speak with Catherine Zuckert about her new and brilliant book, Machiavelli's Politics. This text published by the University of Chicago Press goes through all of Machiavelli's works, work by work, delving deeply and thoroughly through works in political philosophy and his literary work as well. Zuckert's book explores Machiavelli as a political theorist and as a teacher while also examining many of the texts and scholars who have analyzed and assessed Machiavelli since the works themselves were written. I recommend this book not only for the substance of the analysis and the integration of many scholars who have also considered Machiavelli's work, but also because with thousands of footnotes, this is an extremely clear and understandable discussion of the importance and complexity of Niccolò Machiavelli. I learned so much about how to think about Machiavelli from reading this book, and I will let Catherine explain how she came to approach Machiavelli and many of his critics and commentators from the myriad dimensions that she did. But first, I will invite Catherine Zuckert to tell us a little about herself and how she came to this particular project, especially given your extensive research stream in classical platonic work. Catherine, please tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh- Well, first, thank you, Lily, um, for the praise and endorsement, um, and also for the opportunity to do this um, interview podcast. Um, Just to identify myself, um, this summer I retired from teaching full-time in the political science department at the University of Notre Dame, although I'm still editing a journal there called The Review of Politics, and like all my other books, Machiavelli came Sorry, Machiavelli's politics came out of my teaching, but it took some time. Um, my husband and I moved to Notre Dame from Carleton College in 1998. So um, like you, Lily, I think um, at Carleton, we both taught the Prince in an introduction to political philosophy course that was required of all poli sci majors. Um, we team taught the course, and so in alternate years um, he teaches the Prince, and I teach Plato. And those years, I also taught Mandragola um, or Clizio, one of Machiavelli's comedies. And the reason I taught the comedies was I thought it was fun to challenge students to see the connections as well as the differences between Machiavelli's apparently very hard-boiled political teaching in the Prince and his hilarious, if definitely off-color, depictions of domestic life in Florence. Um, over the years, I began to develop the reading of the prints as pointing towards something like the checks and balances of the United States Constitution. But when we moved to Notre Dame, um, that went on hold while I completed my book on Plato's philosophers. Indeed, I returned to studying Machiavelli um, basically by a kind of accident. Um, after I finished drafting um, the book on Plato, I was looking around for a new project. And we admitted a graduate student who had written an excellent senior thesis on Machiavelli's Exhortation to Penitence. I urged her to transform that thesis into a master's paper and to help her set the exhortation in the context of Machiavelli's major prose works, I offered to teach a graduate seminar on Machiavelli's political thought. Once back studying Machiavelli, I was hooked. I will admit it did not seem to me, nor has it seemed to many other people, because your question about how do you get from Plato to Machiavelli is not the first, um, a natural sequence. It was only as I was completing the book um, that it became clear to me that in Machiavelli, I was looking at the major alternative to Platonic philosophy. Um, As you know, in the Platonic dialogues, it's clear that the best form of human existence is philosophy. In Machiavelli's works, it's just as clear that politics is the most important activity we humans can engage in. And it's most important because all other human achievements depend upon the existence of a political order and political orders do not arise spontaneously by nature. They have to be founded and maintained or refounded by human beings who understand what is needed. So politics or philosophy which is most important. That I think is the central question.
1: And, and that's also what I, I found to be really interesting in your work um, is this distinction between a political philosopher and a political theorist um, and why it is important to consider what Machiavelli himself is and why you kind of led us into that a little bit. Can you explain this distinction and how the claim with regard to Machiavelli is important to under to our understanding of his writings and his teachings
0: i uh, yes i well I hope so <laughs> um, I should begin by admitting um, that. By far, the vast majority of commentators consider Machiavelli to be a political theorist or a political thinker. Um, and the reason they do so is pretty obvious. He writes mostly about politics. He doesn't write about the heavens or logic the way Aristotle did before him or you know, philosophers like Descartes do afterwards. Um, nevertheless, there are a few commentators, including Leo Strauss and more recently Erica Benner who have argued that Machiavelli is a philosopher, um, and I agree. They point out that um, like Socrates, Machiavelli concentrates on the human things, but thinking about the human things leads Socrates and Machiavelli to think more broadly about human nature and thus about nature as a whole. To be sure, Machiavelli only hints at what he thinks about the whole in both the prints and the discourses, in the the dedications to which, and only in the dedications to which, he states that he has included everything that he has learned through a long practice and continual reading in worldly things. He does not claim to know anything about the otherworldly, whether that be in the form of Platonic ideas, the God of scripture, or life after death. But in Book 3 of his Discourses, he does claim to know that all worldly things have a limit to their life. That means in the world, Machiavelli knows, everything is constantly coming into being and then decaying. There is nothing permanent or eternal. To me, that suggests Machiavelli was surely no-believing Christian, although he could have protested that he merely claims not to know be an agnostic, and he could have reminded us that he took last rites. So I should probably remind anybody listening that at the time at which Machiavelli wrote, it was not safe to proclaim that one was not an Orthodox Roman Catholic. He had seen the priest Savonarola burned at the stake in the plaza of Florence. That's why there's a lot of controversy about Machiavelli and Christianity. But whatever his worldly wisdom means about Machiavelli's Christian belief or doubts, it certainly means that Machiavelli was not a philosopher of the Platonic or Aristotelian kind who contemplates eternal truths. A couple of other scholars, Alison Wisdom and Paul Ray by (coughs) name, have argued that Machiavelli had an Epicurean view of the cosmos. I think that's basically true. But unlike Epicurus, Machiavelli does not try to to convince his readers not to fear the gods. I mean, he thinks that religion is too useful a political tool simply to give it up. Nor does he, in quotes, retire into his garden and try to maximize his pleasure by minimizing his pain. Um, On the contrary, very much unlike Epicurus, Machiavelli attempts to show his readers how more honest and accurate observations of human nature can become the basis of a political order that will improve the lives of all. He wants to jump into the fray, gives political advice to his contemporaries, and that advice, to be good, um, has to be good if his writings are to be credible. However, and I could say more about this, Machiavelli doubted that his contemporaries would take his advice. So he writes for future generations as well. His advice and thought is not therefore limited to his political context. Because he makes his recommendations on the basis of his knowledge, not merely of human nature, but nature as a whole, I think he's a philosopher. Because he's primarily concerned about politics, he is a political philosopher. But, and I've argued this more in an article I'm publishing in Perspectives on Political Science. He is a political philosopher of a different kind than Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or Cicero. He doesn't try to teach his readers how to live best or to achieve happiness. Instead, he merely tries to show them how they can order their affairs so as to secure their lives and property, as well as in the best case, their liberty. He leaves people free to decide which particular goods they will seek to produce and enjoy. Um, So yes, I think um, what's involved in whether he's a political thinker or a political philosopher ultimately is how you read his works. I mean, are they basically historical or does he have something to say that applied not only in his times, but also in ours?
1: And that's I mean that was part of the questions that my students were asking me as I was teaching the Prince this semester and reading your book um and thinking about you know your argument that I find really captivating with regard to sort of what he is doing as a philosopher um and the and the distinction we had just finished reading the Republic from particularly Plato and Socrates so You position your analysis that you sort of start the book um, within three distinct approaches to Machiavelli. Can you explain the various approaches, which to some degree you've sort of touched on as already um, and how you position your own analysis of Machiavelli's work and his teaching?
0: Well, I will try. Um, when he turned from teaching Machiavelli to undergraduates, which I continued to do when we come, came to Notre Dame, um, and which I think is generally fun, uh, my experience, <laughs> it's like Machiavelli, um, to writing about his works as a scholar, <laughs> I then confronted the fact, um, that, and this is true of Plato too, that there's enormous literature on Machiavelli, and that there are very great disagreements among the commentators. So you know, the question is, well, what do we do in the face of that? And so the, um, the first observation, which is by no means, um he's to me, is that this disagreement um, about Machiavelli, um, particularly about the relation between his two major theoretical works, The Prince and the Discourses, um, arose as soon as manuscript copies of the prints um, began circulating in rest of Europe, well first in Florence and then Northern Europe in the early 16th century. And this this disagreement has really persisted since. So on the one hand, um, those who read the prints and those are by far the most numerous, see Machiavelli, if not as a Machiavellian, or a teacher of evil and tyrants as a hard-nosed realist who's concerned about power politics. But um, there are also those who read the much longer um, discourses on the first 10 books of Titus Livy's history of Rome. I'm not a title I would recommend anybody, um, but at any rate, those who read his longer books think that Machiavelli's a Republican. Um, I agree, <laughs> with most scholars today who think that Machiavelli was a Republican. But I don't think that means we should just dismiss the prince as an early transitional work or one in which he hadn't thought out all the issues. Um, On the contrary, I argue, the moral revolution Machiavelli announces in the middle of the prince um, lays the foundation for the new, more democratic form of republic he gradually proposes in his discourses. And that I think one could say is a central argument of my book. But having said that, there's this um, agreement about this problem of the relation between the prints and the discourses. Um, There are nevertheless different ways of reading both the prints and the discourses. And in reviewing the literature, I thought I could find three basic basic approaches. So the first is the historical approach. Scholars such as David Wooten and William Connell read Machiavelli primarily, if not entirely, in terms of his immediate context. The political circumstances in which he found himself, the individuals to whom he wrote, and the practical advice he offers to them. Um, Since Machiavelli dedicates his prose works to specific individuals and sets his two comedies in Florence at his time, it seemed to me difficult to say that readers shouldn't pay attention to the historical context. The problem is that Machiavelli also happens to write about much more than his immediate circumstances. He writes about historical and intellectual events in Asia and Greece, um, for example, as well as in other European nations. More important, perhaps, Machiavelli gives clear indications that he does not think the individuals to whom he addresses his works are going to understand them. Um, And that's one of the reasons that a second group of scholars, um, including Erica Benner and Steve Fallon, my colleague at Notre Dame, um, emphasize that Machiavelli writes ironically. Um, That's to say he dissimulates. By presenting himself regularly as someone seeking employment from his social, economic, and political superiors, in quotation marks, he describes himself and his aims as less than they are. But by showing that he has the knowledge these superiors need if they are to acquire and maintain their state, he demonstrates in practice that he is the superior to his conventional um, betters. And because he writes ironically in this way, Machiavelli's texts seem to contradict and undercut themselves. So first group historical, second group ironic or literary rhetorical, And then um, third, um, precisely because Machiavelli not only knows better, but also suspects that his contemporaries won't understand him or heed his advice, he explicitly writes over their heads to possible future readers. He hopes will not merely understand what he is arguing, but also follow his suggestions in practice. And I think that means Machiavelli doesn't simply give advice, but he shows, more importantly, how that advice arises from a more general understanding of human nature and politics that applies not simply to his own time, but to future times as well. Um, So then there's a third group of commentators who view Machiavelli primarily as a political theorist or even a philosopher. That is, he has general principles, and those commentators would um, include Benito Croce, Michael Obshaw, Leo Strauss, um, I mentioned Erica Benner, also Sheldon Wolin. Um, so I concluded from um, the survey, although it was really meeting um, the critical works as I went through looking at each of Machiavelli's texts, that each of these approaches has some basis in the text, um, but each of them is also partial. So I tried to combine the best of each while avoiding the difficulties. And they did that um, basically by trying to read each of Machiavelli's works at three levels. So first, like the historians, I pay particular attention to the person or persons to whom the work is dedicated. Um, this isn't un- unusual in the case of uh, The Prince. Uh, many commentators have noted that the work takes the form, and effect, of a job application. It's a rather strange one, but still, Machiavelli makes it clear he's seeking a job from the young Lorenzo Domenici. And many other commentators have also observed that Machiavelli indicates that he doesn't think Lorenzo will actually be able to take his advice. At a certain point, he says, well, you should aim to follow the best, so you'll hit the target in the middle, you're not going to be an original actor. And there is a continuing debate about whether Machiavelli is actually serious in urging Lorenzo to join with his uncle, Pope Leo X, um, in organizing an army to unite Italy and thus liberate it from the, in quotes, barbarians. I contend that Machiavelli thought it was highly desirable to expel the French, Spanish, and German troops that had invaded Italy and to unite at least northern Italy in a defensive federation. And I think in the body of the prince, um, Machiavelli has shown what that would require, not only raising and training a native army, but also overthrowing and killing some of the current princes and republics in Italy. Um, This would admittedly be difficult, if not impossible, and I think Machiavelli understands that the Medici princes are not apt to take his advice. However, I also think one can see from Machiavelli's other writings, for example, the first poem he wrote on the sorry state of Italy after the French invasion of 1494 and his dialogue on the art of war, that is still good advice. That is, he has shown what has to be done if Italians are not to continue to suffer from internal wars and external invasions. it's complicated, but it makes sense. Um, the relation between Machiavelli's recommendations for the creation of a new kind of democratic republic in the guise of an imitation of the Romans in his discourses and the individuals to whom he dedicates that work has not been as generally noticed. I think one reason for that is that very few people now read The Art of War, although that was the only major work Machiavelli actually published during his lifetime.
1: It was out of print for a while.
0: Yeah, I'm, I didn't remember that. That's quite possible because it's been criticized for being technically outdated. Um, at the time, it was translated into several other languages and 21 editions. But <laughs> the point, the scholars who do read it learn that the two young men to whom Machiavelli dedicated the discourses, because they're a part of the conversation recorded in uh, The Art of War, Uh, wanted to duplicate the grandeur of Rome by reviving the Florentine Republic. But they're not apt to be able to do so. And the reason is we see in the art of war that these two young men, Cosimo Pacelli and um, and Zenobi Gundamonti, preferred, we can understand this, um, discussing the best form of government and better military orders after having dinner in the garden um, to raising and training an army, which is grubby work. You have to go out and um, get conscripts and and, then train them. But training that army is the necessary first step Machiavelli himself insisted upon in the prince discourses, art of war, life of Castruccio Castricani and Florentine histories. Um, and also, as an advisor to um, the Florentine Republic, he got to have a militia.
1: He was pretty committed to that teaching. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So, um, as in the Prince, so in the Discourses, um, I argue Machiavelli is recommending what he thinks should be done to found a new and better republic in his own time to these young men, but not believing that they will actually undertake or are capable of undertaking such a grand project. He also writes pretty explicitly over their heads to future readers. He modestly or ironically claims to have discovered new modes and orders, but to be merely showing others with more, in quotes for two, um, or opportunity, the way in which they can take his project to its conclusion and they can get the credit for it. He will at most have been an advisor. And I think much of his analysis was taken over later, although also adapted by Montesquieu and from Montesquieu by the framers of the United States Constitution. Um, so just to summarize, I see these three, uh, the same levels of writing, one to the immediate audience or addressee. Two, the ironical presentation of himself, and three the broader teaching or argument um, in his dialogue, plays, fictional biography, and histories, as well as its major theoretical works.
1: And and I mean that's that leads me into my next question, because you've already mentioned the Art of War, you mentioned the Florentine histories, and also the fact that you've taught some of the plays. Your book takes on all of Machiavelli's writing. Can you sort of explain to our audience, can you provide um, the listeners with an overview of how all of these pieces work together besides his teaching on, you know, getting your own military and making sure it's it's well-trained, which seems to be a pretty <laughs> constant one?
0: Yes, that is. That is. Um, so let me see. I, th- I think you should perhaps respond to this question in, in three parts. Um, first, um, as would be clear to anybody who looked at my book on Plato and then um, looked at the Machiavelli's politics, or even maybe postmodern Plato's, um, I have a general commitment to the proposition, which I take from Leo Strauss and Martin Heidegger, even though either one of them simply um, adheres to this. That to understand an author, you really should be able to, you you need to give an account of the author's entire corpus. Um, And that, of course, proves to be difficult, especially if they're prolific writers. But it's, um, I've I've felt that pressure that you, not just to take, you have to begin somewhere, so you have to begin with a particular work or theme, but ultimately you have to try to get the whole picture. So that would be one. And then in the particular case of Machiavelli, um, most, not all people, but most people tend to concentrate on the prints and the discourses, um, partly because they are more political theory and aren't as literary as um, the other works. But then, um, secondly, because, as I mentioned in the dedications, he says, well, these works contain everything that I know. Um, So when I started this project, I actually thought I was going to be concentrating, like everybody else, in The Prince and the Discourses. But then um, I began to think, well, he wrote The Prince and the Discourses relatively early, but he kept writing. So he must have thought he had something else to say. Um, And what I argue in the book is that um, the the literary works and the Florentine histories and Life of Struccio and some of his, I don't talk about his, poet or his poetry, that these are all um, more partial works, but what he does in the parts is he expands what he has indicated about some themes, but hasn't really developed in the larger works. Um, So I see him as setting forth his theoretical um, framework in the prints and um, in the discourses. But then for example, in the plays, I think he shows what this means for private life. Um, I think um, in Plicia in particular, he shows why he thinks it's a bad idea for people to uh, attach their hopes to goals that are impossible to achieve, um, whether that's eternal life um, as in the play or whether the imaginary principalities in the prince. And um, so I think in The Art of War, he's partly laying out what he thought his contemporaries ought to be doing that they weren't, um, sort of kind of training. And in Castruccio, he's trying to correct an an impression that's given in the Prince that he thinks that, you know, all you have to, do is to be a tough guy and you'll succeed. Well, Castruccio is a very good mercenary who takes over a city, but he is not able to establish a lasting order. So he's not Machiavelli's model prince, even though some of the readers take him to be. And finally, in the Florentine histories, um, Machiavelli's writing about his own city, and he's writing particularly about the Medici. Well, since they paid him to write the history, um, or the Archbishop then Pope did, he couldn't be entirely open, but I think what he does in the Florentine histories that he had pointed to, but hadn't really described um, in the Prince of the Discourses is a new kind of tyranny. Um, And it's a new kind of tyranny that's not based on force, but is based instead on economic power and gives private benefits rather than public benefits. So that's at least how I see um, his works fitting together. Um, I can try to give uh, the third an overall view of his view of politics. Um, so if you will bear with me, um, I begin with um, a statement I bet you also emphasize when you teach the prince. and that is in chapter three when Machiavelli says, "Truly, it is a very natural and ordinary thing to desire to acquire. And always when men do it, who can, they will be praised or not blamed. Um, So it's natural for human beings to be acquisitive. Um, This is one of the many statements in the prints that I think is developed in the discourses. Um, So in the first chapter of the discourses on the beginning of subsidies, Machiavelli explains that as individuals, human beings are weak and needy. So we have to acquire the means of preserving ourselves. That's why it's natural for us to acquire. But in seeking to acquire the means of sustenance, we come into competition and thus conflict with others. Um, And then generalizing. Machiavelli thus denies Aristotle's contention in Book One of the Politics, that human beings are drawn together naturally by procreative desire and economic need we aren't naturally social, we aren't naturally political. Um, neither of these desires or needs keeps human beings together for long. Um, Machiavelli gives examples of that in the discourses. And I'll just comment parenthetically that this is one of the many places one can see the seeds of Rousseau and Machiavelli. But at any rate, what Machiavelli sees is that instead of naturally coming together to form families, tribes, and then political Communities the way Aristotle argues that we do, he observes that left to act on our natural impulses, we come into conflict and competition. Uh, so, as Hobbes later contends, um, although Machiavelli doesn't use these words, he also thinks that the natural human condition is, in quotes, a state of war. So human beings form political associations, according to Machiavelli, not because we're naturally attracted to one another, but in order to protect ourselves from others. So political associations are fundamentally defensive. But then there's a second catch, because once these political associations are formed, they split into two opposed humors, as he says, um, Groups, or he calls them appetites also. So, first, there's the humor of the great who want to command and oppress. And then there's the humor of the people
1: who do not want
0: to be commanded. what I keep
1: telling press. my students.
0: It's obvious there's an opposition there. And um, as Machiavelli explains in chapter nine of The Prince, there are three possible outcomes of the struggle. So, first, if the great win, they will establish a principality. Second, if the people win, the result will be anarchy or license because they don't want to be ruled, be returned to the state of nature. Or three, as he explains only in the discourses, because in the prince, he's writing to princes, if a people establishes a set of laws that allows each of the humors to check the excesses of the others, the result will be liberty. Um, I would point out that, according to Machiavelli, neither of the two humors desires liberty. One wants to control, and the other wants not to be ruled. So unlike later social contract theorists, Machiavelli doesn't claim that human beings are by nature free, or that we desire freedom above all. According to Machiavelli, as in this case we see most clearly in the second chapter of the second book of the Discourses, where he describes the advantages of a free life. For Machiavelli, freedom means security, first of life, then of family, and then of property, as well as the opportunity not merely to participate in politics, but to rise to the highest positions of leadership. And He suggests this freedom is and ought to be the goal of politics, even though it's not the desire animating either of the two, "Quotes humorists often taken to be classes. However, Machiavelli didn't think that political leaders would seek to achieve such popular goals out of the goodness of their hearts. As members of what he calls the great, the grandi, they would seek to maximize their own wealth, reputation, and status. So in the prince, he attempted to persuade them that however they attained rule, the best way they could maintain their state or status was by serving the desires of their people for life, family, and property. You can find that in his redefinition of liberality, his redefinition of mercy, and um, the way you should keep faith. Um, but I think he indicates how this can best be done briefly in his praise of the, in quotes, well-governed French kingdom, especially its parliament in chapter 19. By enabling the people to accuse and try the nobles, Machiavelli explains, this court, because the parliament was a court, enabled the people to vent their humor, as he would say. That is, they could express their resentment of oppressive rule. And so check the nobles who were the king's chief competitors for rule without the king himself having to do so. So, like Cesare Borgia, who according to Machiavelli brought, and he says it was good government to the Romagna, the French king could get the benefit of the people seeing that the law was enforced without having to bear the blame for the harshness involved. In the discourses, Machiavelli explains at much greater length to two young men at their leisure. I mean, they were out of office as opposed to the busy prince Lorenzo. What sorts of policies would need to be followed? He just hints at this, I think, in chapter 19 of The Prince. So in the discourses, Machiavelli also argues that like Romulus, the founder of a new order or a reformer of a corrupt people first, and this is our earlier theme, needs to train an armed group to impose order by terrifying everybody else into submission. That's what Machiavelli dubs cruelty well used in The Prince. But in the discourses, he also explains that a polity needs to be founded by one mind because a group of people will always disagree and must be unable to act. This is a reasoning that Hamilton picks up in the Federalist. But in any case, um, Machiavelli also urges that once a leader has established order, he then needs to make his people see the advantages of that order so that they will work to maintain it. So he praises Romulus for having established a Senate because the best way to get people to maintain a government is to allow them to share in it, especially to be able to check the abuses of other office holders. So in the discourses, Machiavelli derives institutions he gradually recommends from Roman Republican practices. But in the process, he also points out defects in those practices that need to be corrected. So the desirable practices include making all citizens eligible to serve in the highest offices and thus encouraging them to strive to gain glory by serving the republic Incentive system. Um, Generally, Machiavelli admits only the most talented or virtuous will succeed, but competition among them for the favor of the people will lead elected officials to try to satisfy popular desires for security and to check potential abuses of individuals who succeed in becoming elected. So, I think in the first book of his discourses, we see Machiavelli articulating three of the principles James Madison famously states later in Federals 51. So, first, ambition must be able to counteract ambition. The interests of the man must be connected to the constitutional rights of the office. Second, maybe a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government but what is government itself, but the greatest of all reflections on human nature. So third, in framing a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the government, that is the imposition of order by force or terror from Machiavelli, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. As Madison also recognizes in Federalist 51, dependence on the people is the primary control on government. But Machiavelli shows, contrary to many current democratic theorists, that elections are not sufficient. The people can be misled and trust a popular young leader who, if unchecked, turns out to be a tyrant. So in addition to elections, Machiavelli argues a republic has to have a process of holding large public trials of individuals accused of trying to overthrow the republic. Because he calls these trials executions, some commentators have thought that they have to result in bloody murders. But in fact, the examples Machiavelli gives do not all result in the deaths of the accused. On the contrary, one of the most important of these, in quotes, executions results in the exoneration of the accused. So the point of such trials, according to Machiavelli, is not merely to deter those who would seek to overthrow the Republic. It is also and more impos- importantly to remind the people of why they should adhere to disobey the law. If Scipio can be called into court, oh, what about me? Um... However, unlike the American framers, Machiavelli does not put forward a complex form of institutions and laws. The reason he doesn't, I think, is because in the world he knows, everything is always changing. So therefore do the circumstances in which any politician or people finds itself. To adapt to those changing circumstances, new leaders constantly need to be elected and new remedies, as he would say, devise. In other words, the laws have to be changed. In the Prince, Machiavelli thus names Moses as one of his great four founders, but he does not praise Moses or later Lycurgus as a legislator. In the discourses, he acknowledges that previous political commentators had thought that Sparta was an exemplary regime because according to its founding story, its institutions and laws had all been established at once by a single man, it's a single mind. However, Machiavelli suggests, because the very process of accustoming a people to being ruled, or as we would say, civilized, makes the people slavish, that is, unable to rule itself, the Roman model of constantly adjusting its laws and constitution, Machiavelli thinks, is better than trying to keep one set of laws unchanged. And the one set of laws is rigid in changing circumstances. To attain the consent of all to necessary changes, Machiavelli suggests, it's desirable to minimize the appearance of change as Brutus, the founder of the Roman Republic, at least is traditionally considered did, when he retained the old titles for new offices. And Machiavelli also suggests it's desirable to proceed incrementally as Fabius Rullianus did when he in effect gerrymandered the men who had newly come into Rome into a few tribes so they couldn't affect the election of the top offices. But Machiavelli suggests, and he's pretty adamant about this, direct attempts to preserve or reinstate the morals of a people like the Roman censorship don't work. Laws and institutions can't successfully repress the passions that continue to move human beings. At most, laws and institutions can channel those passions so as to have less destructive results. So in all his prose, or so I argue, Machiavelli seeks to show his readers how and why such institutions and laws need to be designed and maintained. He thus writes primarily and explicitly to politically ambitious young men. He appeals not merely to their desire for security and wealth since they tend to have both already, but to their desire to earn fame or glory. And I would add, in appealing to this desire for glory, he distinguishes himself again from later contract theorists. However, Machiavelli also subtly reminds his readers that if there is nothing eternal, there is also no such thing as immortal glory or eternal fame. Those goals are as illusory as the, in quotes, imaginary principalities and republics that had been proposed by his predecessors. Machiavelli himself was willing, therefore, to present himself as a poor, ordinary job seeker with a family he needed to support, and a city he wished to serve so that it would protect him. Although he does not hide himself the way Plato did in his dialogues, but puts himself front and forward as author of his works the way Nietzsche did, Machiavelli does not brag about his brilliance the way Nietzsche does. Machiavelli claims to have discovered new modes and orders that will benefit everyone but he leaves others to execute his ideas and thus to get most of the credit for them. So that's my attempt to summarize and brief.
1: Which is very impressive in fact. Um, and, and I have a question that follows that because you just made this reference to the way that Nietzsche created his work and comparison also with regard to Socrates who doesn't write his work Leaves it to others to track him down, but he's, of course, a teacher. Um, and as I was writing the questions, I kept writing, as I often talk about Machiavelli, not as an author so much, but as a teacher. And we talk about Machiavelli's teaching, and you've been talking about him as a teacher. And I think this is an important, an important assessment, um, in your work with regard to who he is. Um, that he seems much more like a teacher in his instructing of those to whom, as you say, he dedicates the work itself or those who will come later. Um, and so I, I wonder why it is this way with Machiavelli and not so much with those who might follow him, like Hobbes or Locke, um, or even, even Nietzsche, um, and, and also distinguishes him from those who came before who were actually teaching. Um, like Aristotle or Socrates. Um,
0: good. I, um, so I think that um, your question points to the peculiar, uh, um, say, distinctive character of Machiavelli's works. So on the on the one hand, as you just pointed out, um, Machiavelli doesn't seem to be teaching, and in, in fact, I think he pretty clearly is not trying to teach his readers to become better, um, more just, or more moderate um, human beings the way Plato and Aristotle and Cicero were. So he doesn't have a traditional moral teaching. Um, What he says in chapter 15 of The Prince, as you know, is he's going to present the effectual truth. Um, So Machiavelli wants to have an effect. He doesn't think um, that he will have such an effect if he simply tries to teach human beings to be good, because, as he says, um, (laughs) any human being or any prince who um, tries to be good in all things will only come to his own ruin. So he wants to teach whom? princes, political leaders. I mean, it's principe originally meant for citizens. So it's kind of generic. Um, it doesn't mean just the son of a king. Uh, he wants to teach the politically ambitious to be able not to be good. I mean, and if you stop and think about um, that statement, who needs to learn to be able not to be good? Not Cesare Borgia, not Liberato, um, not Romulus. I mean, not any of the tough guys that Machiavelli talks about in The Prince. I mean, the, the person who would need to learn to be able not to be good would be somebody who was basically good or wanted to be. And so what Machiavelli is trying to teach such potentially well um, well potentially well-intentioned political leaders is what they need to do on the one hand to realize their own ambitions and on the other hand to do that by serving their people's deepest desires and those desires Machiavelli repeats again first to be secure in their lives second have their families left alone and third and maybe most important to have their properties protected so it's not I think it's not by accident. Machiavelli's um, mantra sounds a little bit um, like the Declaration of Independence, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, But in any case, so Machiavelli is in the prince um, presenting a new moral teaching that isn't moral in the traditional way but that would have what most people would consider to be um, moral results. That is, so in the discourses, he says several times, he's working for the common good, um, commune bene. Um, But he understands the common good, not to be a good that's shared by all people in the community. Instead, what the common good is a way of the grande, the one humor or members thereof, realizing their ambition to the extent to which that's possible without their oppressing the people. And so um, realizing the desire of the people to the extent that's possible. So if you get a system of checks and balances, what you have is something that's like an aggregate common good, the grandi get as much as they can reasonably, and the people get what they want. Um, and what I think the real decisive change that Machiavelli makes um, in the history of political philosophy is this turn, and so this is in the Prince from attempts to educate a ruling class, which is, I think, what you see clearly in Plato's Republic, Aristotle's Politics, um, Cicero's Officiis. Um, um the earlier view was you would teach um, the people with the leisure to learn, who were relatively few, because you had to have quite a bit of wealth, um, in order to be virtuous, particularly to be courageous and self-controlled, so as to act in the common good and not simply according to their own immediate desires, to rule everyone else with laws. So Machiavelli says, no, that doesn't work. What the goal of government really ought to be, are, or what the goal of government ought to be, is to serve the desires of the people. Um, And the desires of the people are first these desires for security of life, family, property. But even better would be to secure the liberty of all, um, both the grandi or the wealthy and of the many people, um, through this complicated system of checks and balances, but that's complicated. It doesn't come to people spontaneously. It doesn't grow out of the family. This is not a, in quotes, natural development. So from Machiavelli's own point of view, he really needs to teach other people to understand the basics of politics the way he does, and especially the character of human desires human desires just can't be satisfied as far as he's concerned, or human ambition as he sometimes puts it. So that they will design and maintain this system of checks and balances, institutions and laws that will secure the liberty of almost everyone. Uh, But that's why he really is a teacher. I mean, he wants to have an effect and the only way he can have an effect is to teach other people to understand things the way he does. And he's a very clever rhetorician, so he does that in, in, in treatise, in discourses, which is a new form of writing, in comedies, um, fictional biographies, histories, etc.
1: So he's he's taking his hand at at all forms of communication and teaching, yes. and and imbuing each one of them with some format of what he's trying to get across.
0: Right. So I mean, he's not um, as you, as unlike Hobbes and most of his successors. I mean, I, I see Rousseau and Nietzsche as being um, exceptions to this, but um, Machiavelli is just not writing scientific treatises. He's not writing a piece of scholarship. Um, this is one of the ways I think um, the so-called Cambridge School or people who present Machiavelli as, in quotes, civic humanists have gone wrong because he just doesn't write as a scholar.
1: I think that's fascinating. I think that's a fascinating conclusion too. And I, and I'm, I'm persuaded by your argument in the book, um, with regard to it, because I think it, it sort of puts a lot of Machiavelli's disparate teaching into sort of into puzzle pieces fitting together. Um, and so I, I don't want to sort of go on and on and on with you and keep you from many things today. Um, but I had one more question about your work and your analysis of Machiavelli's teaching, and that's his teaching on fortune, Uh um, which is always sort of problematic in, in going over it with my students in the Prince (laughs) because it's so abusive. Um, (laughs) And, and again, you know, you sort of, you sort of are, are pulling out this, this um, Sort of perpetual flux of human existence and Machiavelli's acceptance of that fluidity, and yet this this sort of aggressive teaching that one can control fortune, particularly in the prince. Um, can you position that that sort of teaching within the broader scope of his work?
0: Well, I can try. <laughs> Actually, there was, I just read a review of my book. And she, said, she didn't talk enough about Fortuna. Uh, so um, here I have a chance to respond, at least indirectly. Okay. So I've been accused of being a literalist, and this time I will be. What Machiavelli says at the beginning of Chapter 25 is um, that there's some people who think that fortuna or god controls everything and he then responds that for the sake of our free will he will say that fortuna controls 50% um or that god does so would say um so, so i would say first that machiavelli's understanding of fortuna who was of course a roman goddess so he can make this Slip between Fortuna and God, um, that corresponds to the part of the world that we don't know um, or that we can't control. So I think um, that his treatment of Fortuna is consistent with what I've been arguing um, about his view of the world in which everything is always changing. So, so he says, Well, so what can we do? Again, in chapter twenty-five, um, he I think he draws an analogy between um, fortune and the river. Um, so you can't just stop it, um, but what you can do is you can direct it. And how can you direct it? Well, I think what causes the change, um, nature, or especially in human beings passions so what you can't entirely repress in human beings ever are their passions and therefore there's always the potential conflict in all human affairs but if you understand that you can try to guide it um, so when Machiavelli concludes at the end that um Fortuna is a goddess so a, Um, a woman, and she loves the young um, who will be audacious enough to try to stamp on her. Um, I think in the first place, um, Machiavelli is using very shocking language, which he um, often does, um, to suggest that it's possible to impose some order by force on these change in circumstances or fortune. Um, the discourse, as he says, when Fortuna wants to blind the eyes of, of, of man, or she, when, yeah, she blinds the eyes of man, how? By letting their passions go. So there's some basis for my interpretation. All right, so um, the young will jump on Fortuna and Machiavelli is encouraging his readers to try to take control of things to the extent to which they can. But he never suggests that that will be an entire conquest. At most, we can control 50%. So you could say at most, we can control 50% of human beings who are female rather than male. Um, At most, we can control 50% who are weaker, but almost, they aren't weaker. Um, I think Machiavelli doesn't, unlike some later modern thinkers, ever suggest that human beings can entirely transform nature, that we can be entirely in control. What he urges us to do is to try to understand natural forces, particularly as they operate in human beings, so that we can direct them to more beneficent outcomes. Um, So I guess I think chapter 25 is a summary statement of the two parts of Machiavelli's teaching. And they come out when he talks about um, the kinds of human beings and the kinds of strategies that work. So he says, you know, sometimes impetuous strategies work as with Julius II, but sometimes cautious strategies work as with Fabius Maximus, the, the Roman general. But the difficulty is that no single human being can be so changeable as to adapt his or her own actions to the circumstances because we're all born with natural inclinations. And then, even more important, uh, we have experiences so that if we experience success acting in one way, as Pope Julius did by just going out and attacking people, we become accustomed to acting that way, and we can't just change our ways. We just can't change our habits, uh, which means that it's impossible for any one human being to adjust to changing circumstances, and the circumstances are going to change. But if you get institutions, in this case, if you get Republican institutions, so you can elect different leaders to whose characters are suited to the current circumstances, then you won't be entirely overcome by the changes of or, or by Fortuna.
1: And, and that certainly, you know, I, I understand that in context of the way that you have also positioned all of his works um, in, in sort of conversation to each other. Uh, and, and it certainly is a, it's an interesting teaching, the way he presents it at the end of The Prince, which I appreciate your explanation of. Um, so my next question for you, my final question for you is, what are you working on now, Catherine?
0: Ah, uh, Okay. Um, I'm going to add my footnote. This The chapter 25 with the Fortuna is one of the reasons why I, I use suicide <laughs> in comedies, because comedies, the women are the ones who govern. Um, so it's kind of good corrective. But, um, okay, so what I'm just beginning to work on now is um, a book that I'm thinking will be titled The Search for Self-Knowledge. Um, that was the subject of the last seminar I taught last spring. Um, and uh, is connected to the current question of what does it mean to be human, which has been raised uh, biologically in terms of rights, um, and also in terms of the social sciences. Whether studies of human beings can be ever modeled on the natural sciences or not. So it's a big project, and I'm just. Starting.
1: Will you, when you finish it, will you come back on the New Books Network and talk about it? <laughs>
0: Yes. If we're, both still, <laughs> if we're <here.
1: laughs> both still here, I hope so. <laughs> um and I assume that one can get a hold of Machiavelli's politics from um the usual online places or if you wanna call out any local independent bookstores, um you're more than welcome to. <laughs> oh,
0: I wish I could call out independent local bookstores. Um, so yeah, you can buy you can get it directly from the university of chicago okay press
1: online. And, so, and since you know, it's cyber monday who knows there monday. might be a special on it today <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today Catherine, on the new books network and i recommend your book um machiavelli's politics by university of chicago press to all who are interested in understanding machiavelli and understanding politics so thanks so much for being here today